are alive to shine. I'm Beth. And I'm Kate. And this is the Shine Podcast, where we meet lots of different people and hear about the ways that they light up the world. And here's why we're doing this. We've been changed and affected by people who shine with the love of Jesus. And the world needs people like that, and like you, right now. So be encouraged. And let your light shine. shine. Well, I only went my sophomore year to Norwin High School, uh, which was three grades with 2,400 kids. So it was a pretty good size school in Pennsylvania at that time. And then you came to little old Columbiana. Yep, came to Columbiana. Graduating class of? 1979. (laughs) I know, but how many people were in your class? Oh, I don't know what. 125 or oh, something. Oh, that was big I don't for Columbiana. 85, uh, you know, I was around 100, something like that. Yeah. So it came my junior year and my senior year, I got elected class president. So I don't know how that happened, but. The new new guy on the <laughs> yeah, block. The new guy on the block, yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to give you a vulnerability warning. I'm probably going to be pretty vulnerable because. Okay. <laughs> We've been warned. Because why not? <laughs> You're here. I'm 60 years old and it's like. I'll get into that later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll also intersperse it with, I can't wait to hear. Yeah, lighthearted. With lighthearted, happy dad stories jokes. and I don't have any bad jokes like these yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, like, I listen to our podcast and we're laughing about everything. Is I'm that like, okay? Well, I don't know. So I'm like, maybe we shouldn't be laughing about that, but we're laughing about it. Well, every time I listen to Michaela's, I've had to listen to it a couple of times because of editing. And every time I'm like, I bet it's a dump of talking about her college. <laughs> I'm like, it's really funny. But I'm sure that some people are like, inappropriate. All those that Pennsylvania people. Very Please don't be offended. <laughs> Choose not to be offended if we're laughing about things because we have yeah. the joy of the Lord in our hearts. <laughs> Even though there's trials and pains, we still have the joy of the Lord. Would you tune in if we were crying? <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome, Shine Podcast <laughs> listeners. It's Liz. It's Kate. And we are here with the distinguished Rich Sheldon Yay. today. Welcome, Rich. Nice to be here. Thank yes. you. We're going to be you. a bowl of laughter today <laughs> in the midst of vulnerability. This interview will lighten your day. <laughs> Lighten your mood. Rich was born in Newton Falls and lived there through second grade. Interesting fact about him, he has eight, there's eight Sheldon kids. Rich is the middle son, seven sons. There should be a movie about that. He's the middle <laughs> middle great. son of seven sons, and then Princess Amy came along. God bless Amy. You guys probably feel the opposite. <laughs> Mama's favorite. Whenever she wanted to go on a date, there was definitely a line of oh, brothers no. poor, that poor the Amy. poor guy had to go through before he ever got to Amy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Came to pick her up at the door, and, you know, my brother Todd would be so there. So that's fascinating. Scott would be there, and Tim would be there. <laughs> you, you learn a lot about people about their birth yeah. order. So yeah. middle son, seven sons. Are we acquainted mm-hmm. with seven brides for seven brothers? There was TV a movie show, or what was that? It was a movie. Was it tell a western? Me you've seen it? Oh, I don't know. I I know the name, but I can't tell you if I've seen it. It or is not. a movie. Sure, I mean it is a western. They moved around a lot when he was a kid, and then he came to Columbiana, spent his junior and senior year in Columbiana, became the class president his senior year, Rocket. met the love of his life, Beth Sheldon. Oh, she is 
season one, episode 31, if you want to check her out. She shares their story. So after graduating, Rich went to YSU for a year, and then he started a career at Kimple's Jewelry. He was a jeweler for 18 years in the profession down in Columbiana. He's also been a bivocational pastor for 12 years. He did two different pastorships. You've got a lot of skills. You're a frack technician. He did that for five years. A finished carpentry contractor. Oh, wow. A lift driver. I didn't know That's that. new. Is that the thing that goes beep, beep, I did that beep, last beep. year. <laughs> There's a lot of things that go beep, <laughs> No, it's similar to Uber. <laughs> oh, oh, never yeah. mind. I take yeah. that back. No, L-Y-F-T, that makes me sound stupid. Yeah. <laughs> L-I-F-T probably goes beep, beep. That's beep, what I was beep. thinking in my head. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what are you moving around? You're moving people. people. Moving people. People, they're in the cart. I bet there's fascinating stories about that. We'll get into them later. I want to hear one. You have a Lyft driver story? I have a now that couple so you know if you're not like me what a Lyft driver is yeah. it's L Y F T. We were right. trying to keep it light. The one Lyft driver story I have isn't so light. All oh. right, don't tell us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're with people in their experiences wherever they're at and wherever they're going. I was you're in entering Pittsburgh into that. during COVID, and you would drive into downtown. It was a good time to start. I started in March of 2020. Right as COVID was getting, you know, and before all the mask and everything was official, people were staying home. And so I was learning how to drive around Pittsburgh with like nobody else on the street. That's the best time to learn Pittsburgh. Yeah. I mean, I'd come through the tunnels, you know, and there's those five lanes no, or whatever there I are hate there. That. And I could just choose. La, 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 la. The one time I picked up a guy, <laughs> I picked up a guy in downtown Pittsburgh. He goes, I can't believe it's Friday night. I'm going home to my family. <laughs> How do you, you know, what do you Poor say? You. Last place you'd want to be in the world. They probably don't want you home either. <laughs> oh, the bars were closed and, you know, there's nothing else to do. <laughs> this That's July... Great. Beth and Rich will be celebrating their 40th wedding anniversary. They have six grown children, four daughters, two sons, six in-laws, son or daughter-in-laws, and 13 grandkids with three on the way. So they're going to have... 16. Your quiver is full. Wow. 16 grandkids. He spent a year at YSU. He went to Elam Bible Institute Regent University. He's got a bachelor's degree in cyber security. He's been at the Upper Room since 1978. And then Beth and him left for Elam in 1999. And they came back in 2015. We've hmm. been blessed to have Beth and Rich back in our mm-hmm. fellowship. They founded Heart to Heart Ministries in 1999. And they're going on another mission trip to Paraguay. Mm-hmm with that shortly. So welcome, Rich. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you. Yeah. I'm happy to be here. Well, tell us, Rich, who or what turned your light on? I grew up in a Christian home and kind of, you know, you've heard that in several podcasts. If you've been listening for a while. And my Christian upbringing basically taught me to obey the Ten Commandments and you won't burn in hell for eternity. That was the summation. And we went to these different churches because, you know, moving around, you get to go to different churches. The Nazarene Church over in Circleville, Pennsylvania, they would give their altar calls every single week. And every week I would be up front repenting Mm -hmm. once again. 
there just wasn't any real solution there. Mm-hmm. It was white knuckling it, you know, just I got to try harder. I got to read my Bible more. I got to pray harder. I'm not praying. You know, the scripture that talks about the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That was very condemning to me. I'm not availing much. <laughs> what I'm praying for is not availing. <laughs> what I'm praying for is I'm just failing. And I'm thinking these thoughts. At one point as a young man, I actually prayed for my sexual desire to be removed from my body. <laughs> God, just take this away. Just remove the desire. You created the desire. You made that, you know, part of my, and that's how young I was and foolish, obviously. You know, it was just, that was my introduction to Christianity. Now, Hmm. my parents did the best they knew with what they were given, I think. And um, later, what really lit me up was Beth and I went out on our very first date to the homecoming. I remember at that time, I was running with a group of guys that if you didn't get a good night kiss, that was a mark against your manhood. So we pull into the driveway after the homecoming, and I ask her, you know, if she'll give me a good night kiss. And she says, no. I'm like, what? Like, she doesn't understand what I'm asking for. I said, well, it's just a kiss good night. It's not that big of a deal, except, you know, really it was. I just said, it's really not that big of a deal. She goes, no. I've given my heart to another. Because I asked her, I said, is there somebody else? What's the, you know, what's the hesitation here? She goes, yeah, I've given my heart to another. And I'm like, I knew she'd just gotten back from Venezuela. And I'm like, is it somebody in Venezuela? She's like, no. I said, well, I know it's not anybody local because all you do is study. You have a (laughs) reputation here. And she's like, you know, it's not anybody local. And she was real hesitant, you know. So finally... I drag it out of her, and she says, I've given my heart to the Lord, and I can't be with anybody else who hasn't fully committed their life to Jesus. At that moment, I was so new to all this. I had no clue what was going on. But at that moment, I can say now it was the Holy Spirit that just into the car. My dad's orange Chevy Vega (laughs) at the time. And came into the car. I started just bawling. And uh, she said, let's go for a walk. So we got out, and I still remember walking around Manor Circle. Snow was falling. You could see it in the streetlights. And she just explained to me what it really meant. You know, to say it was life-changing is kind of an understatement. (laughs) But that's what really lit me up. From that point on, I was so hungry to hear more about this. She invited me to come to the upper room. She said, well, you can come to our church, you know, and... The upper room at that time had a reputation. I mean, you know, small town, Columbiana, a bunch of pot smokers and, you know, barefoot, long-haired hippies with guitars and just wild things went on there. So, Just in case you're wondering, Bruce was not one of those pot smokers. <laughs> well, there really wasn't any pot smoking going on. I don't know about it anybody else, but I'm sure it was rumor. not Bruce. Yeah, it was rumored that way. Anyhow... I wasn't even aware of all that. My mom told me that later because she had heard rumors at the women's club or something. You're going where? So With who? I started going to the upper room, and I remember, you know, when I got there, indeed, there were people playing guitars up front, bare feet, long hair. Beth's dad was really the one who answered my questions. And I'm just sitting there going, whoa. And the choruses were like, 
nothing I had ever heard before were just like these real simple things that, you know, you just repetition over and over. And I'm like, where's the hymn number? (laughs) So that was all new. I'm just a babe in Christ, 18 years old or whatever. That's dad gave me a book by Robert Frost called A Glow in the Spirit. I read that book, um, had more questions. Eventually, Beth prayed for the baptism of the Holy Spirit with me in the basement of their house. And it's interesting, when I wanted to speak in tongues, and with all my heart, I'm like, I got to, you know, I want to see the evidence of, of this baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was given like one syllable. Somewhere, someone said, don't despise the small beginnings kind of thing. You know, it's like, if you've given one syllable, just pray that one syllable. And I'm like, man, it's got to get, it's got to be more. But that's how I started out. My hunger for the Lord at that time was just through the roof. That was what lit me up. It was really the baptism of the Holy Spirit and just the revelation. It took me, you know, that was part of the progression, the growth, the understanding, you know, that, yeah, Jesus really is. He cares and he's with you always. And So, so you've been on the journey for 42 years. Yeah. Tell us what lights you up. What lights me up is really the, this might not sound very spiritual, especially for a former pastor, but what really lights me up is physical, visible evidence of the Lord's work. I, I still like to pray, but it really lights me up when I see the effect of prayer. I think of times when I've actually shared a word of encouragement with somebody and you see their face light up or you're sharing a word that you sense the Lord has given you this information and you're really not sure, but as you begin to speak, you see the person just begin to cry. And you're like, oh, maybe this is God. And so when we traveled down to Paraguay or the work we did in Mexico for years with um, the Upper Room and with Harvest Preparation International there, you would see, it seems like when you're overseas, For yourself, there's a lot of hesitation that just kind of fades away because this isn't about your reputation. It shouldn't be about your reputation in the States either, but when you're with a small group that you've been with for a while, there is a hesitancy at times. It seems like there we saw a lot. It is pretty pretty powerful, and uh, that's... I've gone around and round and round and thought about, you know, what really lights me up. The sad part is I look back over the decades and at one time just being in the word was enough that lit me up. I would read the book of Acts and I would put myself there and take what was happening in the book of Acts and pray, Lord, let this happen here. Let me be the guy who walks past somebody on the street and their life is changed just from the shadow passing over them. And and let me be the guy that can say, you know, silver and gold, I have none, which I can easily say, but what I have, let me give to you and see that person rise up and walk. That lit me up. Worship. I would spend hours and hours with my guitar trying to write songs, not ever really getting that down. I don't know how much my hearing affected even being able to tune the guitar now, but um, I was passionate about worship. And again, I spent hours. Now, looking back, I've questioned, as I've thought about this, I've questioned how much of it was me being passionate about worship and how much of it really was me being passionate about being with the worship team. 
Because again, I said earlier about how much I really look up to certain people, like Regent University. It was Pat Robertson. I looked at John Wimber when he was alive and what was happening with the vineyard movement. Unfortunately, I have a tendency to idolize people now. Is that an Enneagram number? Because <laughs> I've been trying to figure out this Enneagram thing for years. We've been talking about that and with Beth. Beth, in our yeah, shine Beth has been trying to help me, and I have just been like, I have no clue. But I do know that people and pleasing people, wanting to earn people's respect, wanting to be honored, has been like this huge motivation. So I look at my time with the worship team and I think, well, how much of that was really just wanting to get to a certain point where people would say, wow, you're good. Wow, that's great. Listening to you when we were talking before we opened, being the middle child of seven sons and having your mom say when she finally had a daughter that, oh, I finally got it right. Your love language or your your number, how that may have affected you more deeply than it may have affected another brother. It's interesting because when I listened to Melanie Good, she mentioned the term betrayal trauma. That was new to me. I hadn't really heard of betrayal trauma. In a way, when your mom says, it took me seven tries until I got it right, you can take that as betrayal. This is the love of, you know, it's like, this is the one figure in my life. And again, she doesn't even remember saying that. She's passed away now. Again, you know, that's just what I was hearing, whatever. If my dad gets to listen to this, I apologize to my dad for (laughs) making my mom look bad. Well, it impacted you greatly. Yeah. And what happened beyond that is I was a partner in a firm And at one point, I was told that I was no longer a partner, but if I wanted to be a clerk, I could stick around. That hurt. That is still being processed. And the crazy thing is, that was decades ago, and yet there's still ramifications. I don't know if you've ever watched this series, This Is Us. One thing that that series really does a good job of the theme that continues to repeat is you don't know what small action or what small thing you've done, how that's going to look decades later. The father in that story, I don't know if this is anyone who hasn't seen it, I don't want to give it away or whatever, but he ends up passing away because he brings home a used toaster and it's the toaster that catches the house on fire. Now, who would think In this case, I was asked not to, basically, they went behind my back, got the papers drawn up, and I was written out of the business. When I became a pastor up in East Williamson, New York, the fellow that I had asked to come alongside me and be my worship leader was also a graduate from Elam. After he was there for so many years, he began to talk to people about what he would do if he was a senior pastor and how he would change this if he was the senior pastor and how he could do this better if he was the senior pastor. And all this was going on behind my back without me knowing anything at all about it. And finally, it all came to light. And when I talked to him, I said, when I brought you on, it was so that you could be basically mentored here. And then if you want to be a senior pastor, I'll find you a church. Elam will go, you know, Elam Fellowship will help us find you a pastorate. And his response was, no, this is my church. This is where I'm called to be. God already told me. You know, once you play the God card, what is there? That was a huge betrayal. And earlier, if you want to, again, I don't mean to everything. Let's let's change this question. Rich, (laughs) Rich, 
Rich, tell us what what was the water that got thrown on your yeah, torch? Yeah, really. Again, and the thing I wanted to encourage young men with is when I was younger, we were really being told you need to come alongside somebody. You need to find a mentor. You need to, which resonated with me. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah. So I went to one older gentleman and I said, I'm really wanting to do this. And uh, I really respect you. I really, you know, I really honor you. I think this would be great if you would mentor me. Basically made myself vulnerable, submitted myself that way. And his response to me was, I really don't think you know what you're asking for. And I'm like, well, maybe that's the purpose of mentorship. Maybe you can tell me what I'm asking for. But I didn't know how to respond to that at that time. I was just like, oh, okay. So then I went to this other guy. And I don't remember the time frame of this, but I asked this other gentleman. I said, look, I'd like to be able to, you know, grow in the things of the Lord. I'd like to mature in the things of the Lord. I'm really feeling called to leadership. And I uh, know I can't do that on my own. I'd really like to see how you can help me, you know, if you could help me walk this thing out. And his response was, why should I give to you what no other man in this fellowship is receiving right now? And again, I had like, how do you answer that question? And then I told the other guy who had said, you know, I don't think you know what you're asking for. And when I, when I shared that story with him, he said, well, you could have responded because I'm the guy who's asking for it. Or Maybe. you just could have said yes. <laughs> so it was interesting, you know, going through that. Again, it seems like the betrayal and the betrayal trauma, what really hit me from Melanie was you need a process. You need a way to go through this and how the church really hasn't been historically, the church capital C really hasn't been equipped to deal with people's trauma in that way, in that area when it comes to betrayal. The stigmatism behind stigma behind uh, even divorce. And, you know, I know you had your interview with Scott and talking about some of that. And I think Melanie addressed some of that, you know, Mm -hmm. the stigmas attached to some of this, you know, because it's easy, you know, somebody comes up for prayer, they've got this evidence of this physical abnormality. You can say, oh yeah, you know, let's pray that God will remove that growth from off of your face or whatever. But someone comes up and says, I'm just really dealing with depression and I don't know where it came from. And you ask him, well, you know, did you ever process through this betrayal? (laughs) That isn't usually what you get asked. Heard Melanie Melanie talk about that? Is that something that you feel like you haven't processed through yet? Oh, yeah. I think (laughs) I started listening to some of these books by like Caroline Leaf, I think. Oh, yeah. And and, uh, there's one I'm listening to right now called The Kaizen Method, Small Steps. And uh, he gets into the whole... A lot of it's because I was playing Beth's section of it, and she goes, that sounds just like Caroline Leaf, you know, because he's, he's getting into the whole processes and how the dopamine and cortisol and the, you know, all those things. His whole thing, you know, the Kaizen method, the whole thing is small steps. It's helpful because in Western society, lots of times we think it's the big innovation. Those are like the two extremes. The Kaizen method is the small steps. It's the Kaizen method that turned around Honda Corporation that turned around Toyota in business. We think it's the big innovation. Oh, they've got to, you know, reinvent the gas combustion engine. No, it's the little things they did on the assembly line. For me, it's helping to think I don't have to just, like I talked about earlier about my behavior and changing and wanting to just be completely sinless. 
what can I do to just make my life completely sinless? And to be, put it in whatever context you want, what can I do? What is the magic pill that's going to make me the perfect husband? What's going to make me the dad that my kids have always deserved? What's the one big thing? I just need, that's what I'm looking for. And the Kaiser Method said, no. Wake up each day and say, what's the small step that's going to get me started? Beth talks about in her podcast how you leave her notes every morning. Yeah, it hasn't been every morning, but definitely seasons. That's a small step, but it has Mm -hmm. big rewards. And it is, it's the consistency. One thing you can do. Well, I appreciate your vulnerability coming on here at 60 saying you just recently got an aha moment about something and you're you're going after it. You're digging in, you're reading the books, you're processing that and how it's never too late. It's never too late, but I also appreciate that no matter what age, when we're talking about working through anything that's an issue inside of us, it's work. It really is work. The idea that we can have issues and be vulnerable about our issues, that's one step. The next yeah. step is actually beginning to work through those issues, which is a whole nother, that in itself is a battle. It's work and it's messy. Yeah. It's so messy. It is really and messy. I think sometimes you say, you know, like we want that big, what's that big thing? Because yeah. sometimes that seems easier yeah. than what's the step-by-step yeah. hard. That's yeah. harder work than like, what's the big answer? Just give me that yeah. and then I'll be yeah. fine. And I think for me, that's been the ongoing, because some of these things, I mean, they're decades. You know I mean? It isn't just like this just happened. And it's reoccurring. Yeah. I'm beginning to see now that sometimes, this is again the book I'm listening to right now, the doctor, the psychiatrist, actually makes the argument that there is no such thing as stress. He said, we have invented the word stress so that we don't have to say, I'm afraid. Because when we get to be adults, we don't want to say, I'm afraid anymore. But if you really study what's stressing you out, the underlying motivation for being stressed is... I'm just scared. And even in Christian circles, you don't want to say you're scared because there is no fear in Christ. You know, (laughs) we're not going to be afraid. He says, fear not. How many times? If I'm stressed about my finances because I'm really afraid and we're not going to have the money that we need to be able to do the things that we want to be able to do. And you just name it. What are you stressed about? And his guy does a good job of explaining all of that. And the reason why he explains it is because he said, unless we call it what it is, we don't understand what's happening inside of our mind. Our brain is putting the chemicals in place to deal with our fear, and we're calling it stress. You know, so you really have to get to the root. You know, you really have to recognize. And I have to be able to say, yeah, I'm afraid. I don't know why. It sounds like semantics, you know. If I tell you, hey, I'm really stressed about this job. That sounds, you know, that's acceptable. But if I tell you, I'm really afraid about what's going to happen at work. Now you're like, oh, that's weak. I was just going to say that. I was going to say the semantics (laughs) is, is that stress makes you come across as still sounding. It's almost like it's external. Mature. And like you still have everything in command. I'm a little stressed about this. But saying I'm afraid suddenly makes you weak. And we don't like being weak. And we learned that at a certain age, we learned that it's not okay to be afraid. 
go back to bed. There's nothing under your bed. Don't be afraid. The other thing that's really helped me with this book, and I actually implemented this this week, is he says that our minds are actually geared to answer questions. And so instead of just telling ourselves, don't be afraid, we ask ourselves, what are you afraid of really? What do you fear right now? It's huge because your mind is geared And I used this with my grandson yesterday. It was so crazy. He was being a little bit, I mean, he was just being a boy. And so instead of me just getting, my response with my kids would have been just to get louder. And it's like when you're down in Paraguay and people want to speak with you. And it's so funny because we all do this. You know, they'll say something and I'll look at them with that quizzical look that says, I don't speak Spanish. And instead of just, accepting that, they'll say the same Spanish phrase louder. He didn't understand that before. So here I am, the grandparent. My grandson doesn't want to do this, so I've got a choice. I can just get louder. Or instead, I took this psychiatrist's advice and I started asking him questions. And it worked a whole lot. I won't say it was perfect, but it worked a whole while. For one thing, it kept me calm because I'm trying to think of what question can I ask him that's going to help him here? What can I ask him that's actually going to bring about the result that I am trying to get to? And that takes a lot more patience, just thinking about the question and letting him process it. And so then I'm asking him, are you understanding the question? And, you know, he's doing what boys do, just kind of looking all, and I said, took his chin, you know, and I I made eye contact with him, and I said, I will reword the question if you don't understand it. Do you understand what I'm asking you to do? And then he's like, yes. Then why aren't you doing it? That's where we're getting, you know? But isn't that so amazing that we see the example of that in Jesus, how Jesus continually, over and over again, asks questions. When people want answers... Or they want an issue to their problem solved. It's the question and another question. He is the example for that and how effective and beautiful that is and how it works with people. (laughs) I'm sure there were people at the time thinking, does he even understand? (laughs) Right. And I mean, even you just saying, you know, how much more patient it makes you, you know, the supreme example of patience in Jesus just Mm -hmm. could have responded one way. I mean, if anyone could have just laid it out, boom, 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 he was the one. But so interesting, too, because I was thinking back at the beginning of your beginning of the podcast where you were saying, you know, the goal was to become sinless. If you do the Ten Commandments, you won't burn in hell. You know, as this has progressed and we keep talking about mental health and being healthy people, all of those rules, you know, even when Jesus says, fear not, all of those, yes, they're to keep us from sin. But therefore, are good. Mm -hmm. I mean, those rules, they're not to create more chains around us. They're all for the health of our lives. And so Jesus is after that. Jesus is after the best for us. Our mental health, our wholeness, life and life abundantly. But we have to be able to see scripture in light of his heart. That it doesn't come across as like, quit it, quit fearing, you know, like you said, like, there's no monster under your bed, go to sleep. You know, we grow up that way, but it's not that way in Jesus' response to us. The other thing he points out is within each of us, there is an innate desire. It's just a part of who we are. We know as children, when we are in that place of fear, we get out of our bed and we go to our mom 
Mom never had to tell us, look, if you're ever having a nightmare, if you're ever afraid of lightning and thunder, if anything ever overwhelms you when you're alone in your bed, you can come to me anytime. <laughs> Moms never have to say that to kids. No, it's the opposite. You know, as they get older, then we start saying, no, don't come to me anymore. You know, it's like, <laughs> work this out on your own. You can do this. But within us, and so, you know, he's giving the solution. What do we do then when we are afraid? We really, and you know, this is the Brene Brown thing. We really need to be willing to be vulnerable. <laughs> we really need to be willing to reach out. And this is part of the vulnerability that I came willing to share. My long-term struggle has always been with pornography. I've struggled with viewing pornography, and I've been through the men's groups. I've been through the studies, and I've heard, you need an accountability partner. You need to get this software. You need to do this. You need to do that. It's only when we started to put some of the mind things, and again, talk about betrayal. I want Beth to get healed from all the betrayal, because every time I've done that, I'm not in a bubble you know, and that's one of the yeah. lies that you begin to tell yourself is this isn't hurting anybody. This doesn't have any victim. You know, it's kind of a victimless crime. And none of that's true. Again, I just wanted to encourage young people. I don't know if I ever finished this thought before, but I really wanted to encourage young people to connect, to really make that a point. Find someone. I mean, don't even use the mentorship thing. Just like be a friend. <laughs> You know, and that's one of the hard things yeah. about being a pastor is I became friendless. Within the church that I was a part of as a small rural congregation, and I loved the people. But there's only so much that you feel that you can share. And the other lie that comes against you, especially with like I'm dealing with this secret sin, is you feel like, well, I can't reveal that to anybody or they're going to think that faith doesn't work anymore. That's kind of the... The way I was thinking, well, if people in the congregation knew that I had this issue, then they're not going to be able to follow Christ anymore. I'm supposed to be the one that shows them how to walk out their faith. Well, and it's such a deep <laughs> secret, but if you look at research, there's tons of pastors that struggle with the same issue, and nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah. It's, oh, the percentage of porn in the church is huge. I think it's interesting when you think about, you know, you're asking yourself questions. When you talk about the Enneagram, and mm. for those of you who don't know and think we're crazy because we're talking about numbers all the time, it's a personality profile. But more than your, the personality profile, it's a motivation. Yeah. What are your it core motivations motivation. and core fears? Well, and dealing you know, with weakness, we were talking about pornography and admitting that, you know, this has been an issue, you really don't want to lose face. Oh, right. Oh, right. Yeah, and that's as huge. as a pastor... Uh, well, that's how Satan isolates you. Yeah. Like, Absolutely. I can't, I can't tell anybody yeah. this. I'll lose my just, job. I was just reading yeah. this yesterday. There was an article I was reading. There was someone saying so many times the issue with pastors is that instead of feeling a responsibility to people, the issue becomes they believe they have a responsibility for people. Yeah. And that that's a lie. Yeah. The truth is we have a responsibility to people. So yeah. what is our responsibility to people? That we remain vulnerable. Yeah. These things that we don't want to do, that's our real responsibility. We are responsible yeah. to people. We are not responsible for, for people. people. That's huge. You've been through training programs about the reason why men, and it's not just men that mm -hmm. struggle right. with pornography. I think that's been a lie that 
I hardly ever hear women saying they struggle with it. But just recently, I've heard more and more young women who are saying like, I've struggled with this. It's Harlequin romance novels is their yeah. porn. Yeah. Um, idealized yeah, the romanticism. Gray, the series, yeah. The reward of it, it's temporary, but what is it? Is it, do you feel valuable? Do you feel? Well, a lot of it's control is what they say. It's almost like you think of any uh, sitcom or anything Hollywood, you know? I mean, it's all make-believe. And it, my mom loved to watch Hallmark romance movies at Christmas time. If you think about those, and I remember this meme that I saw one time, a guy standing on a street corner, he has this cardboard, and uh, it says every Hallmark movie is the same. Or basically it is, you know. <laughs> yeah. The guy comes back to the small town, or the woman comes back to the small town, and but it's all just fictional. That's the thing in pornography. The storyline is so predictable, and yet it's just not the way things really are. And it really does put unfair expectations on people. It puts unfair, you know, I mean, it's objectification. And and you can know all the reasons why you shouldn't view it mentally. You can catalog all that information. That really isn't. That doesn't knew, turn into motivation. No, that's no. not the that's not the motivation. And I think that's getting back to Enneagram. I think that's one of the things I've struggled with is trying to know what is the motivation and part of my go-to scripture was there in Jeremiah where it says, you know, the, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? And so that was always my reason just, well, I'm not even going to try to figure it out. It's like, who can know it, you know? <laughs> but it does help to know what it is that you're medicating, whatever your drug is. Right. Because it doesn't have to be porn. We can no. we can say, oh, porn. Well, I don't do that. But we no. medicate in so many different ways that all end up being a cover for what we truly feel and struggle with. Sometimes it's porn, but know how to lots of other the, times it's other things too. We know how to release the dopamine. One bite of chocolate. There it is. And again, you can tell yourself all you want that if a bag of potato chips in the evening watching a movie is not good for you, but part of your brain is saying, this is the response you're looking for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. What I keep trying to say is I, I'm just going to throw this out there as like a warning. It can be that. Is we were tight when we were at the upper room. We had three other families that our kids were about the same age. We were in the same sphere as far as homeschooling and a lot of these things that we had in common. And we were getting together one night a week just to play euchre. We were card buddies. And we had built this relationship. We went family camping together. We did all this stuff. And then there was an adulterous affair that occurred within that group of eight. And seven out of the eight were like, what? How? You know, you just felt blindsided. How could this happen? We are tight. We are close. Those families were affected by that one affair in ways that I can't even describe to you. We are not close to any one of those couples now. And I mean, this was years that we got together. There has to be a depth of relationship that we get to, folks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can put it that way. We have to be able to go beyond the card playing, even just praying together on Sunday morning. There has to be some other place that we can go to where... We are really being open. And it doesn't, like I said, take the mentoring label off of that whole thing. And I think the Shine Group, from what Beth is telling me, there's a lot of success in that there. People are able to get to another another level. 
I'll tell you the other thing that it's hard from speaking about pornography from that perspective. There was a pastor that I had at one time, not here at the upper room, but when we were living in another place, that stood up and said, I've never understood pornography. You guys need to get help. I can't give it to you because I've never had that problem. Wow. (laughs) And you're like, define empathy for me. And again, shame-based correction is not the way to go. It's not that I can't learn and grow from people who haven't dealt with and struggled with that particular issue, but the whole shame thing and just being able to bring things into the light. And I think about the one instance where it ended up being the guy's babysitter. And I think, how many times could there have been a point where this guy came out and just told It didn't have to be me. I don't care who it was, but just told, I'm beginning to feel some things for our babysitter that I really shouldn't be feeling. Again, I just can't wrap my head around that because from outward appearances, we were close and we were hearing it on Sunday morning. You got to be open. You got to be loving. You got to be caring. You got to be there for one another. Do you feel like you've experienced freedom from this? I have experienced freedom. And when I experienced The most freedom is when I'm feeling the best about myself. I feel like... You got to go home and read the three chapter. (laughs) when When I struggle the most is right after rejection. And I am my worst critic. If you find a rejection, when things like that happen, it's easy to look for the medication to make this thing go away to give my mind something else to, some reward. Rather than the inner critic, I'm looking to silence the inner critic by giving myself this boost. I know I'll feel better if I get that, but thankfully the brain is so elastic and the latest in findings, however many years, is saying, yeah, no matter how deep the ruts have been, we can make new pathways. We can find another way to do it. Right. So. And I, I just attended baccalaureate uh, a couple nights ago and Monica was one of the main speakers at baccalaureate, but she actually spoke about that, the mind, the idea that the ruts that you have created can become new and different ruts and you can rewire your brain. Mm-hmm. But that really, she has learned that firsthand by learning about gratitude and how much gratitude and thankfulness Mm -hmm. has changed her life, rewired her brain, made her new in so many different ways. Changed her DNA. Changed her DNA. But again, it's something else that we see in scripture. You know, what are we asked over and over to do? We're asked to give thanks. We're asked to Mm -hmm. worship and praise with a grateful heart. That's just not God being like, I need some more glory today, guys. Mm -hmm. It is really, while we are giving glory, it is the answer to to some of our our neurological and mental issues. (laughs) The stuff that's got us down, stuff that's messy, down deep. And she's part of the reason I started to implement that three things I'm thankful for every day. I started writing that. Oh, that's so good. Because of Monica's Instagram, and I was reading those things there. Yeah. And then Chris did a series, I don't remember when, but he was talking about the benefits of thankfulness and just being thankful. Yeah, if we can become content, the discontentedness really jacks our inner world up badly and the contentedness affects us all for the good. But God knew that. So tell us, Rich, in in the midst of you processing a lifetime of experiences and feeling like you're struggling and finding freedom and walking this journey, how are you letting your light shine right now? 
My light shines the most when I'm with my grandkids, when I'm with family and uh, able to influence them for the better. And believe it or not, there's an eagle's nest not far from here that's on Lipley Road. The baby is now peeking up above the nest, by the way. Do they and have a cam on that? No, there isn't a cam on that. We're pretty spoiled because it's Somebody right should get on that. <laughs> there by the edge of the road. When you're there, there's people that see the Facebook page, which I've not been on the Facebook page, but I understand if you look up like Lipley Road, Columbiana Eagles Nest or whatever, it'll come up. And there's people coming from Akron, from Pittsburgh, from, you know, all these places to take pictures of this eagle. And so perfect strangers are coming up to you and just striking up a conversation. It's just uncanny. It's just a strange phenomenon. You have this thing in common and people are willing to, you know, just come up and, and share. So I've tried to let my light shine there. And uh, when I was driving Lyft, again, I tried to interject whatever encouragement or whatever. You know, when we taught the class on sharing prophetically and speaking, you know, when you feel an impression from the Lord and you're speaking this, what we taught was if you can speak a word of encouragement or a word of comfort, or if you can strengthen someone's faith, you're really prophesying. I mean, that's the definition of the prophetic. So you don't have to put the prophetic label on it, but anytime you can find a way to just speak a word of encouragement. So I try to do that. I try to think about the words that I'm speaking in that way, is this going to encourage somebody? Mm -hmm. Is this actually going to be a word of comfort? Or is this something that's really going to be criticism? It's interesting, again, that book that I'm just listening to, the guy said, oftentimes we ask questions that are really a criticism because when the mother says, why did you spill your milk? She's really not looking for a lecture on motor skills and development. She's criticizing you for spilling your milk. Anyhow, I try to be encouraging. I try to be a positive influence when I'm around people. This trip to Paraguay is one way that we let our light shine in that part of the world. And uh, when I'm there, of course, I'm not speaking Spanish. So I'm an example of a husband who is willing to let his wife listen for him and speak for him. Because <laughs> <laughs> I tell people she's my eyes or my ears and my voice. So then is it my question now? Yeah. Okay. It can be about your friend the squirrel or maybe a dad joke you brought with you. Or if not, you can share the new four of a spiritual experience that you had that you would like to share. When I was uh, working at the jewelry store, I was asked to go over to Grove City, Pennsylvania and to look at a store there uh, to see if it would be something that we would be interested in purchasing. Hmm. And while I was staying above that store, I was working there and trying to um, learn more about the business. But while I was there, I had fallen asleep. I was really, at that time, I was really passionate about wanting to hear from the Lord, wanting him to speak to me, wanting to know what it was I was supposed to be doing because um, I believe Beth and I were not married yet but we were engaged. We were going to be married that coming July. So I think this was in like January or February, like right after the Christmas season it ended of um, 1981, that would be. I don't know. It sounds kind of like Paul. I don't know whether it was a vision or it was in a dream. I sensed or I literally felt the presence of the Lord in the room. 
again, I don't know whether I physically did this or whether I just dreamt I did this, but I believed I opened up my eyes and I looked over and I saw the Lord in the room. And when I saw him, he started to walk past my bed. And I remember thinking of this scripture about the woman who reached out and touched the hem of his robe. And so I thought, I've got to touch him before he leaves the room. And when I woke up, I was on the floor. I literally leapt out of the bed trying to reach. That's my experience. You just woke up on the floor. <laughs> Startled. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. When, I, when I hit the floor, that's when I realized this is happening. <laughs> At that time, I just felt like the Lord was reassuring me that I was not alone in this. Because when I went to bed that night, I remember now, I really just felt like, felt like the Lord gave me that picture just to let me know that he was there with me. I feel like those big moments, they come pretty few and far between. Yeah. But those ones are memorable forever. Yeah. But again, it's the small things day to day that add up. Well, we really appreciate you coming on and being so vulnerable and yeah. open with us. I think... If you're out there listening and you have identified with some of the things that Rich has shared, struggling with pornography or having a lot of betrayal trauma in your life, I just want to say to you, Jesus loves you. There is freedom. The reason why God wants you to be free from things that trap you, whatever it is, is because he wants the best for you. I would encourage you to reach out, to talk to people, to let light in to those dark places in your soul, because Jesus does want to bring you freedom. And also, Rich, I appreciate that you're on here being vulnerable. You know, you're saying you're 60 and you are still seeing things that have impacted you from a long time ago, and that you're willing to not say, oh, it's too late, but wherever you're at in life to say, oh, I just recognized this about myself, or I just learned a new term mm -hmm. that I identify with. I'm going to dig into that because I don't think it's, it's never too late to get free and to continue to grow. And so I appreciate your vulnerability and openness and just being able to share, hey, I don't have everything together. And there's still hope and you're learning. And I love that something from the podcast. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, betrayal trauma. And you're digging into that. I, I'm looking forward to having you on an, another season when you've got more to say about this. Mm -hmm. Make sure you tune in next week for another special guest. Bye. Bye.